Chapter 21 Social Security All non-reciprocal aid is just alms, and alms demoralize, take away all self-respect, every incentive to do well, blunt intelligence and energy, paralyze confidence in oneself, and pass on inertia and recklessness. If you take away man's concern for his existence, you also take away from him the best joy, the joy in his own work and in its fruits. Hermann Schulze de Litsch, Social Reformer As shown in Chapter 4, welfare states with their failed incentive structure ultimately lead to ruin, incapacitate the citizens, and cause antisocial and dependent behavior. Nevertheless, systems that provide protection against elementary life risks such as illness, accident, or disability are in high demand. Free private cities, which also seek to be attractive for the average wage earner, must therefore answer the question of what such coverage might look like. Simply throwing contract citizens out because they can no longer take care of themselves due to their age or an accident is incompatible with the fundamental idea of protecting the life, liberty, and property of the residents. This is particularly true when such citizens have spent most of their lives in the free private city and would otherwise be a burden on their nation states or the host state. That's not necessary either. There are proven alternatives to today's social systems. Mutual Aid Organizations During the 19th and early 20th centuries, most families were proud to be able to maintain themselves. But when the main breadwinner became ill or died, the family faced serious hardship. The response of the people to this harsh reality was the creation of collective self-help institutions. In England, these were the Friendly Societies, in the USA, the Fraternal Societies, in Germany, the Trade Associations, Gewerkverein, and Cooperatives, Genossenschaften. They had in common that the leaders of these associations were very critical of paternalistic welfare. They regarded it as a matter of dignity not to be dependent on such alms, but to be able to help each other. The aim was to emancipate the workers instead of bringing them into dependence on the state or church. These self-governing associations were diverse in appearance, but functioned more or less in the same way. Those who made regular contributions to a joint fund or provided assistance for others in kind were entitled to receive appropriate benefits in an emergency. For example, support could be provided for travel to interviews, relocations, illness, disability, unemployment, exceptional emergencies, and deaths. These support services were always intended only as extreme emergency aid. Any abuse was watched closely and was usually punished with exclusion. Incidentally, as far as this high degree of social control was concerned, these organizations did not differ from the socialist trade unions, which had set up comparable relief funds. In Germany, the trade associations and cooperatives initiated by the district judge Hermann Schulze from De Leech were the most prominent. Schulze De Leech, as he was called, rejected state and other outside help because it made people dependent and inactive. It is remarkable that in the 19th century, he already foresaw almost all the problems that plagued today's welfare state.
The American Fraternal Societies boasted about 18 million members at their high watermark around 1920, which was about 30% of all adult males at that time. What was the reality of people at retirement age then? According to a survey conducted by the state of New York in 1930, 43% of the elderly were provided for by their own means, savings or pension entitlements, insurance, fraternal societies, while family and friends supported a further 50%. Fewer than 4% of the elderly were dependent on public or private welfare. Contemporary surveys report that the combination of personal responsibility, family support, and collective self-help institutions also led to responsible behavior in very poor residential areas. The fraternal societies were particularly popular among the black population who often worked in the low-wage sector. They maintained traditional cultural and civilizing standards, took responsibility for their own lives, showed pride, independence, and strength. Young blacks in the 1920s, unlike today, were as likely to grow up in two-parent families as young whites. This suggests that the welfare state itself has caused most of the evils it claims to fight. Until the beginning of the 20th century, British friendly societies were also an integral part of society. When the British government introduced compulsory social insurance for 12 million people in 1911, following Bismarck's example in Germany, nearly 7 million members were already insured in around 27,000 friendly societies, with a strong upward trend, and another 2 million were organized in unregistered mutuals. At the moment of their greatest success, these associations based on voluntary membership were thus displaced by the state through its compulsory insurance. In principle, the same thing happened in Germany and the USA. Conversely, if the welfare state was abolished, collective self-help institutions would revive. The operator of the free private city can help here by promoting the establishment of such institutions itself or by encouraging interested organizations to do so. It may be that free private cities will require new citizens to join such an institution if they do not have private social security. Private Insurance in addition to membership in collective self-help institutions, which are practically mutual insurance associations, it is also possible to insure oneself through commercial insurance. This applies in particular to pension and health insurance. Private companies can operate more efficiently and effectively than state-owned enterprises, but not because they're smarter or more skilled. They simply have the better incentives to increase profit and lower the risk of disappearance. As a result, private providers will do much more for the same money, whether in the pension, health, or education systems. Switzerland has also had to go through this experience. It was not until 1996 that compulsory health insurance was introduced. At that time, however, 97% of all Swiss already had taken out voluntary private health insurance. The legal requirements and privileges of the new compulsory insurance regime set the same false incentives that had already been shown elsewhere. The results were predictable. Since then, health care costs have almost doubled and have grown three times faster than real incomes. There is an alternative. 
Singapore obliges its citizens to set up individual health savings accounts and pay 6 to 8% of their wages into them. From these, the majority of the desired treatments are settled by the holder directly with the doctors, and special payments for desired additional services are possible at any time. The same applies to the acquisition of additional high-risk insurance for serious, expensive treatments. The result? Expenditures on health care amount to only 3.5% of gross domestic product, while most Western countries expend around 10%. The quality of medical care is high, as is life expectancy. The saved funds stay in the patient's account to be passed on to his heirs. For the needy, about 10% of the population, there is a medical foundation fund that meets its payments exclusively from its investment income. Despite an aging population, Chile has achieved what is considered impossible in many places in Europe. We are talking about changing the statutory pension insurance system from a pay-as-you-go system to a funding system. There is only one obligation left, namely to pay 10% of gross income into a pension savings account. If one wants, one can pay more voluntarily. There are certified private pension insurance providers who invest the corresponding funds and among whom the payers can freely choose. The pension savings account is the personal property of the employee. If the retirement age of 65 years is reached, the beneficiary can call up his payments but can still continue to work and earn additional income if desired. Conversely, anyone who has saved up the right to a pension of at least 50% of the average income over the last 10 years can retire, irrespective of age. After 30 years, the conclusion is that the performance of the new system is already 50 to 100% higher than that of the old system. On average, pension rates of about 80% of the average income of the last 10 years are reached. The growth rate of the Chilean economy almost doubled due to the newly gained investment capital. Employees have developed a direct interest in the economy, as they are now shareholders in the largest Chilean companies. Demographic problems are irrelevant. The system established by Chile is already a mixed system that is predominantly self-determined and based on market incentives. For example, the freedom of choice between several providers self-care and the assumption of personal responsibility. The illusion of free service is avoided. Several countries have already adopted the Chilean model, for example, Australia. Building on this, the operator of the free private city can initiate similar insurance systems himself or through corresponding providers. Whether participation should be obligatory depends on the circumstances of the respective private city, the existence or non-existence of mutual aid organizations, and the target group. Family and Friends Finally, the oldest form of help for the weak remains, support from family and friends. Years ago, a friend and supporter of the welfare state gave me his own example to consider. Half a year ago, he was surprisingly diagnosed with a brain tumor, and the result was a very expensive, fortunately successful, operation. Without the welfare state, he believes this operation would not have been possible. But is that true? Let us assume that a welfare state does not exist and that the person concerned has neither private health insurance nor is he a member of a collective self-help institution. 
What would have happened then? First of all, his family would have tried to raise the money for this operation. If this had not been possible, the family would have turned to close friends to ask them to help. They would probably have made the matter known to a wider circle of acquaintances and asked for support. So a relatively large group of people would have taken an interest in the fate of the friend. In reality, hardly anyone heard of this case. In real, life-threatening situations, relatives and friends stand together precisely because they know each other and the person affected. Social control to prevent abuse is possible and effective. But what is crucial in this example is that the whole process of compassion, the search for support, and the voluntary and hence genuine solidarity actually did not take place. And that's because of the welfare state. Charitable Institutions Now, there are undoubtedly cases in which family or friends cannot provide the necessary help for financial reasons. Only in such cases, in which no insurance or self-help institution is available, a charitable donation is possible. This includes, for example, the elderly, severely disabled or chronically ill with very expensive treatments for whom no affordable insurance or self-help institution can be found. It is estimated that this group does not exceed 5% of the population in developed countries. Given the huge sums already being spent on charity, it is difficult to imagine that sufficient funds cannot be raised on a purely voluntary basis for this. This is particularly true in view of the fact that in such a scenario, exorbitant expenditure for the welfare state would be eliminated. That is, every employee would have considerably higher net income available. The free private city could set up and advertise a social fund to which donations can be made voluntarily and which helps in cases of hardship. A Minimum Safety Net The support options described via collective self-help institutions, private insurances, family and friends, charities, should be sufficient to deal with all cases of real hardship in a community. But there may also be a need for some kind of reinsurance in order to sleep more soundly. In this respect, a contractually guaranteed minimum social security can also be provided by the free private city, which is included in the basic fee. The prerequisite would be proof of need and the non-existence or non-performance of the aforementioned security systems. Examination and payment are carried out by the administration of the free private city. This will provide food, shelter, and health care for the affected citizens under conditions that provide incentives for self-help. The result, upswing and stable social conditions. As a result, the multi-level model discussed will function much better than today's welfare states because it mobilizes the best in people. This includes taking responsibility for oneself and others, genuine compassion, strengthening family and small communities, imagination and ingenuity to overcome difficulties, voluntary solidarity and, in return, gratitude and, last but not least, pride and satisfaction in mastering life on one's own. It is also suitable for promoting maturity and independence. Finally, it contributes to understanding the basic principles of the free private city, such as the reciprocity principle, the voluntary principle, and the golden rule. 
The creation of genuine capital reserves increases the investment ratio. Fewer costs arise while at the same time providing better social security. Economic upswing and social stability are the result.